Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. The winter energy crisis won't be as bad as everybody fears. Inflation will start to come down. By the spring, that enormous Labour poll lead will be a fading memory. And as the next election approaches, ordinary people across the land will throw their caps in the air and cheer the name of Good Queen Liz. No, no, I can't do it. Tempting as it is to tilt against the conventional wisdom, sometimes you just have to face facts. The conference was awful. The speech was awful. This has been the worst start to any premiership, I think, in recent history, perhaps even in all British history. That, Dominic Sambrook, was um, a top pundit, a top columnist, a top historian, namely yourself, <laughs> uh, delivering yes. your verdict on Liz Truss. What was that about a couple of weeks ago? Yes, it was. So halfway through her premiership. Yeah. Yes. So, now, so now it's come to pass. So we're recording this at 13.40, so 10 minutes after uh, Liz Truss announced her resignation. And um, clearly people across the land will not be throwing their caps in the air and cheering the name of good Queen Liz. And would you, um, I guess nothing has happened since you wrote that to change your opinion. <laughs> that, she ranks, that she ranks as perhaps the worst. I mean, seriously, do you think she's the worst prime minister of all time? Well, I'll tell you what I wrote. I, I wrote later on in that article. Um, I think she's comfortably, putting aside her politics, I said, I think she's comfortably the least impressive person to become prime minister in my lifetime since the advent of universal suffrage and perhaps even since the creation of the office under George I. And actually, I think uh, uh, as a columnist, you spend an awful lot of time making historical parallels and, and getting basically getting things wrong, making well, predictions. And engaging in hyperbole be, as well, right? Yes. I mean, the well, worst, uh, the best, whatever. Yes, but making predictions that turn out to be ludicrously untrue. However, in this case, I think it was pretty obvious to anybody who, without a stake in the contest, as it were, the Liz Trust was a, a fantastically underpowered candidate um, uh, for the Tory leadership. She won all the same. There was nothing in her premiership that suggested any sort of hitherto concealed qualities. It, seem, it seems to me to have been one last massive gesture of irresponsibility and spite from the preceding prime minister, who politically was much more aligned with Sunak. I mean, Sunak was continuity Boris. But because uh, Johnson resented what Sunak had done to him, he was determined to spike his guns no matter what he could. And so he backed Truss, presumably knowing she'd be terrible. Well, that's what people say, isn't it? Does he Putting his kind of personal resentment above the national good. Uh, yes. I, th I, I mean, that's what some people say, that uh, Boris Johnson... I mean, it's, it seems unbelievable to me, Tom, that if just a few months ago, you and I were recording another emergency podcast, or we recorded, I think, two emergency podcasts on the fall of Boris Johnson, once when he had a confidence vote, which he narrowly survived, 
And then once when he had that absolutely preposterous series of events in number 10 where everybody <laughs> resigned, but he refused to leave. <laughs> yeah. Now, at that stage, I can remember we did this podcast and we said, and you said to me, is there any precedent for this in British political history? And the answer was no. And I, I, I said to you at the time, I don't think, you know, I never imagined I would see scenes of this sort of utter ridiculousness in number 10. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yet they have been eclipsed by yesterday's laughable so for our overseas listeners a laughable shambles in westminster i mean when the itv evening news reported on it and the you know the sort of the very neutral sober kind of news presenter tom bradbury said um it is total uh, and utter abject chaos and that was his introduction to the to the main news bulletin that gave you some sense of the flavor you had government whips effing and blinding storming out Truss apparently pursuing her chief whip around the Palace of Westminster, begging her to stay. Home Secretary forced to resign, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, but Dominic, we're not a politics podcast because I gather that there is another politics. Uh, I'm not another, aware of it. There's another podcast there one, in the, the Goldhanger stable yeah. that, that yeah. may well be handling this. Um, so I thought that since we are uh, history focused, um, there might be two areas to focus on. One is parallels in British history, short lived prime ministers short term um you know are there other parallels in other periods other countries that we could compare this to um and then the other question that i would like to ask you is that you are a historian of modern britain you've written this series of of, of brilliant analyses of british political but also social and cultural life from what 1955 is it yeah uh, 1956 exactly, yeah. um up to 1982 and one of the running themes in your books is that most people do not pay much attention to what is going on in <laughs> yes. Downing Street. So they're busy whipping up Angel Delight or playing on space hoppers or watching the football or whatever. Yeah. So I, I would like to I, I would like to ask you, you know, does all this matter or is it just surface froth? But first of all, um, short lived prime ministers. So Liz Truss, by the conventional reckoning, has has now beaten George Canning. Yes, yes, she has beaten George Canning. George Canning, who we last mentioned accompanying Horatio Nelson. Oh, God, yes. To HMS Victory in Portsmouth in 1805, shortly before he sails off to go and die at the Battle of Trafalgar. So that's the measure of, you know, just what a long running <laughs> record that's been. There is, I mean, there is, there is some controversy, isn't there, about whether um, the Earl of Bath should actually hold the honour. So he was asked in 1746 to, to form a ministry. Um, and he went away and two days later came back and said he couldn't. So by that reckoning, he would still hold the record. Yes. Most sources don't rank, rank him as a prime minister. He's not in any of the official lists. I think asking somebody to be a prime minister and then them coming back two days later and saying, I can't be, doesn't, that seems to me a, a far, frankly, a far more dignified way of proceeding <laughs> than somebody becoming prime minister and then 45 days later saying, I can't, I, I'm, everybody hates me and I'm terrible. I have to go. I mean, Dominic, just on the human level, it's kind of, it's the worst nightmare, isn't it? Applying for the job for which you're not, not ultimately qualified, you get it. And then your, your inability to, to hold this job that you've wanted all your life is on the most humiliating public stage. Tom, I, I wrote a column about this earlier this week in, in relation to Kwasi Kwarteng, Trust's short-lived chancellor, about nightmares. And I said, because um, I, I, I wrote or I'd had a nightmare about being pursued by Quasi Kwarteng and then about having to enter a poetry competition against him. <laughs> 
So I had two successive nightmares about quite. Well, this is when you had flu, wasn't it? I had flu. Yeah, yeah we should explain. You're not, you don't normally have the, no, such weird vivid nightmares. Yeah. No. Um, so I had two, I, I, and, I, and I, I wrote the piece, and it was all about politicians uh, and the sort of the nightmare that we all have of being found out, sort of imposter syndrome. And, and I, I do think that with trust that actually. Never before in British history has there been such a spectacular case of somebody getting a job for which they are utterly unqualified and and then imploding so dramatically in front of the cameras. I mean, these the moment when she was, you know, she she was completely humiliated. Uh, Kwarteng, her chancellor and sort of partner in crime, had to go. She got rid of him. In came Jeremy Hunt, sort of Mr. Sensible, to be her chancellor and to rip up her policy in front of her, and I remember seeing her sitting on the front bench of the House of, in the House of Commons alongside Hunt, and she looked like I mean people sort of said she's on twenty minute day release from Madame to Swords, you know she looked like somebody in shock, the colour drained from her cheeks, um, and, and there is at a human level. I mean personally, I don't have a tremendous amount of sympathy with Liz Truss. No one forced her to to go for the premiership, but it, you're right, it must be. I mean, it's a bit like the podcast we did about Nixon and Watergate to, yeah. to, to see your career unravel in such a humiliating way in public, your inadequacies. We all fear we've got them and we all know our own limitations, but to have them laid bare and so extensively in front of an audience of tens of millions, that must be awful. Also, the, um, I mean, the thing with, with Kwarteng is that they've, very good friends. I mean, whether they still are, I don't know, but they were absolutely, you know, they wrote the budget, which helped precipitate this meltdown together. Um, and the, the, the figure of, um, a supposedly powerful office holder obliged to defenestrate, um, a, a favorite. It's, I mean, it kind of redolent of medieval or early modern history. I mean, it, it you know, the king's favourites being... So it's a bit like, I mean, faint echoes perhaps of Charles I being... And the Earl of Stratford. So quasi Quarteng is the Earl of Stratford. Yes, or um, um, Edward II. Edward II being forced to get rid of, um, you know, his favourites or whatever. Henry um, VIII, when he, after he got rid of Thomas Cromwell, years afterwards, he would basically sort of say, if only Cromwell was here, he would know how to handle this. Yes, but Henry VIII, I mean, no, nobody ever forced Henry VIII to, to, to do anything. I mean, he no, was... No, that's right. Whereas, whereas the thing about Charles the First and Edward the Second are humiliated, and yeah, they're broken reeds so. after that. I mean, Charles. I mean, it's one of the things that actually leads Charles to fight the Civil War. But someone like Edward the Second, after he is forced to get rid of his favourites, he his his authority gets shredded and shredded and shredded. Yeah, and that's that's certainly the case for Truss. I mean, and 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 if Liz Truss is feeling bad, I mean, he, she can always reflect on the fate of Edward the Second and. <laughs> and think that it oh, that it might be worse. Yes, I suppose. So. <laughs> I suppose so. Well, anyway, Tom, to return to your question you asked me, which is about um, precedence. So we were talking about George Canning. Uh, Canning's excuse for being a very short-lived prime minister is that he was 119 days. Is that he had TB? Yeah, that's fair enough, isn't it? You know, most very very short-lived prime ministers. I'm looking at the list here. So Bonner Law, for example, who's the 20th century's shortest lived prime minister, Andrew Bonner Law, so that's the 1920s. He um, came and went in 1922, but he had throat cancer and he had a, you know, a, a fairly distinguished record as the leader of the Tory party for many years before that. And he'd been involved in the coalition government in the Great War and so on. 
Um, so trust is really out on her own since the dawn of universal suffrage. There has never been the case, a case where somebody has become prime minister through an internal kind of party leadership election and then disappeared within such a short period of time. And it's been accelerating, hasn't it? The pace at which prime ministers come and go. Yeah. Um, but I, I, somebody had tweeted that they have a four month year old baby who has witnessed two, now three prime ministers, probably uh, two monarchs, about 20 chancellors of the exchequer, about yes. 50 yes. home secretaries. I mean, the, the, the churn <laughs> and the pace is something that, that, that we as a nation are not used to. No. And a good example of that, Thomas, um, our producer was just saying that Tony, that until the age of 38, I think he'd only ever seen three prime ministers. And in my case, um, from the moment I let me guess, get, get this right from the autumn after I entered school until I think my 16th birthday, just after my 16th birthday, I'd only ever known one prime minister, and that was Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she was there so long, and then of course, John Major was there for seven years, Tony Blair was then in for another what was that a, a decade or so, yeah. So, you know, it's very unusual in British, yeah. So, things are, are speeding up. Uh, and the the parallel that that leaps out at me is the um, the third century in the Roman Empire, <laughs> where you you know you have these long reigns in the second century, Hadrian and yeah, uh, Marcus Aurelius and so on, um, and then it all implodes in the third century. Um, and the, uh, the 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 obvious comparison to Liz Truss is um, is Gordian the first. That's not a comparison I've often heard from the nation's pundits. <laughs> So um, he, uh, th there's this terrifying, there's terrifying figure um, up in the Balkans, uh, Maximinus Thrax, Maximinus oh, yeah. the Thracian, yeah. who's murdered um, the legitimate em an emperor who is kind of related by adoption and so on to, uh, to to Marcus Aurelius. So in that sense, a kind of link with the the golden age of the Antonines, um, and Maximinus Thrax is about nine foot. Um, he kind of pulls the heads off oxen for fun. Um, he's said to have worn his, his wife's bangles as, as rings on his enormous fingers. So he's a kind of terrifying guy and people back in Rome, you know, think we don't want this barbarian as our emperor. And so they appeal to a very, very distinguished senator called, um, uh, Gordian, um, who I think he's about 80. And they say, go on. And he really doesn't want to do it, but he feels it's his duty. He's governing Africa, so he's in Carthage. Um, and he's he's so old, he's kind of Biden-esque, that he says, I, I can't manage this without my son. So his son becomes, who's also called Gordian. So Gordian the first, Gordian the second, they're, they're kind of co-emperors. Um, and they last 22 days. Oh. And that's it. That was someone kill them. Yeah, they, uh, Gordian II loses a battle outside Carthage. Um, he gets killed in the battle. His body's never found. Uh, the news is brought to Gordian I. So rather than hold a press conference and announce his resignation, um, he hangs himself. Oh, my word. That's that's a strong reaction. So again, again, I'm just, you know, it's kind of one of the constellations of history, I guess. Yeah. It's that no matter how bad things may seem for you. <laughs> You're not Gordian the first. There are always people who've had it worse. So I, I, I'm just offering that to supporters of Liz Truss. That, you know, it could be worse. Liz Truss will not. There won't be many candidates, Tom, for Liz Truss's um, resignation honours list. So if you get in now with your consolation, 
Yes, that'd be good. I'd say you've got a pretty good chance, actually. Of, well, um, I, I'm, I'm putting that on the record. Uh, of course, the other parallel is one that we have touched on. Uh, yes. was in our um, series on Australian prime ministers. And yeah, there was a they... stage where basically prime ministers in Australia were knifing each other kind of every other week, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And um, yes, and we were, ta- we were talking about that, that, that culture of leadership spills. I mean, that was really, because there's actually nothing really wrong with Australia, I would say. I mean, it's not that Australia doesn't have issues and challenges. Of course it does. But I don't think you, if you were looking for a country that, where that's political culture had gone wrong, Australia would not be high on that list. No. And there it was really, it became a sort of culture of backstabbing, didn't it? And a sort of ludicrous plotting. Well, because, yes, someone would be stabbed, then they'd come back from the dead and stab the person who stabbed them, and so it would yeah. go on. So it was actually an argument for the return of death as a, <laughs> yes. as a weapon of political, yes. Yes. political Again, competition. Again, that's the lesson of the third century AD. Yeah. Right. A- any other parallels that leap to mind? I suppose Italy. There's a, the cover of um, The Economist has um, Britannia, uh, holding her trident and it's got spaghetti wrapped around it. Um, Italian re- readers must find that very flattering. But there you had prime ministers, I mean, in Italy or in sort of France between the wars, you would have prime ministers rising and falling and disappearing within weeks or days. The, the difference there, I think, is that first of all, prime ministers would fall because the nature of that political system meant that politics was a constantly shifting exercise in coalition building. So as different factions fell from office. And so that has always been the people in favour of the first-past-the-post system that we have in Britain. It's is yeah. always that, that you don't need these kind of messy compromises with the risks of coalitions fragmenting that you get in systems under proportional representation. But I suppose the, the comeback to that is that even in the parliamentary system like we have, both parties are coalitions. They are. But the part, but the reason we've had so much turmoil is not just that, that the Conservative Party is a very large coalition. Um, it's that, I mean, I think the re- it's the result of a couple of things. Okay, uh, okay, hold on, Dominic, hold on, okay. hold on, hold on. Oh, because cliffhanger. So just a very kind of short guerrilla uh, episode, um, and I think we've done enough for the first half. When we come back, though, I want to return to that question I said to you, which was, does any of this matter? Is it just surface froth, or is it? Um, expressive of some deeper underlying structural, constitutional, economic malaise. We will find out. I'm just going to say this to you, that after the break will be your only opportunity in the history of this podcast to do an impersonation of Liz Truss. So whether or not Tom Holland takes that opportunity, we will discover in just a minute or two. Hello, welcome back to uh, The Rest of History, uh, a special episode that we're putting out following the defenestration of yet another British Prime Minister, uh, in this case, Liz Truss. Um, And before the break, Dominic, you issued a challenge that I should do an impression of Liz Truss, which I'm going to turn down for the reason, basically for the reason that I've been away so much over the past few weeks. You have never heard her speak. So all so all summer I was I was flat out with my book which I may have mentioned. Then I went away on holiday to uh, to decompress and as part of that decompression I was not listening to the news and I was not keeping up with it. And so I I kind of came back and I missed all the Liz Truss drama. Then I was away um a, a, again over the past few days. So basically I don't really know what she sounds like. So that's the problem. She's got a kind of flat voice, hasn't she? Very very flat voice. The only thing I can really imagine her saying is is that awful, awful speech, incomprehensibly bad. Um, next week, I'll be in Beijing, opening up new pork markets. 
Yes. We import more than half of all of our cheese. That is a disgrace. Well, that's very good. I, f- I feel that Liz Truss is at the other end of the Zoom call. Um, <laughs> That's but, a terrifying. That's a sentence you never want to hear, Tom. No, but but um, well, unless she's offering me a peerage, <laughs> that peerage, uh, that for Gordian themed <laughs> consolation. The theme, yeah, exactly. Which case, you know, I'd love it. Um, but let's let so let's get back to um, the question of of is this so? As a historian of modern Britain, is this a typical crisis? Um, is this the kind of surface churn or? Is this some, you know, you said that she's the worst prime minister that you can think of. <laughs> yes. is, is this the worst crisis? No, it's not the worst crisis. I think it's bad, but it's not the worst crisis. So what's the worst crisis? Well, I suppose you would have to, I mean, it's a, a boring and cliched answer, but um, you'd have to say the summer of 1940 is the worst crisis. I mean, that's an existential crisis. Post-war. So, oh, post-war, it's it's really bad. Yeah. What I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying, you know, 1588 yeah. or whatever. Uh, <laughs> the, the period that you covered. So, so from, from the late 50s through to, through, through to the pr- present day. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant question, Tom, because actually it depends what you, how you – well, it cuts to the heart of how you think about politics – do you think politics is the driver of national life and of historical change and so on? Um, or do you think politics is the reflection of it? And you're more the latter, aren't you? I'm more the latter, yeah. And the, the crises when I think about the 1970s, for example, I mean, there were some horrendous crises in the 1970s. I guess the two really classic ones are the winter of 73, 74, with the three-day week, all these states of emergency and the implosion of Ted Heath's premiership after the oil crisis. Then I suppose the winter of discontent, seventy eight, seventy nine, when James Callaghan's prime ministership, you know, pretty much collapsed because of uh, the a colossal breakdown of the relationship between the government and the trade unions and massive strikes. And then you, you know, you've got the various sort of there was a, a, a generalised sense of crisis under Margaret Thatcher the first couple of years with unemployment going through the roof and so on. In those cases, what was happening at Westminster? Was, was very clearly a reflection of bigger economic issues. You know, so the, it wasn't that politics itself was broken. Um, politics itself, you could argue, was actually fine, but politicians were just struggling to deal with insuperable, you know, it, it appeared insuperable problems and they were broken by them. Um, in this case, I think there's something peculiarly seems to be something peculiarly rotten with politics. Part of that, by the way, is I think they have the opening up um, the choice to party activists. It's terrible. Oh, it was a terrible, terrible. So Liz Truss is now, basically the Jeremy Corbyn of the Tories. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, this is exactly what I'd say. I would say that um, that st- the Labour Party started doing that. It was driven by the left of the Labour Party in the 1980s. Tony Benn. It was his great campaign. He claimed it would open up party democracy, allow ordinary members to choose the leader instead of a handful of MPs. Um, and the Tories felt they had to follow suit in the 1990s. William Hague changed the rules. So since then, the activists and, and the different, and, the, and of course what that went hand in hand with is the impl- is the collapse of both parties as as proper mass membership organisations? Although Jeremy Corbyn's supporters would argue that 
and correctly that 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 he was born to the leadership on a great wave of of enthusiasm and actually the party membership under labor went up but that's but it was a that's a different kind of party membership from the days in which Labour was a genuinely, in inverted commas, national party. So that in other words, like what happened kind of Bubo under the armpit, <laughs> right? A sudden swelling. Well, well, what happened under Jeremy Corbyn was that basically people who had, who had very marked left wing principles rushed into the Labour Party to join it, and therefore swung the centre of gravity massively to the left. But the Labour Party originally, when it was a, you know, in the first years of the 20th century was actually in some ways not actually an immensely left-wing party there were tons and tons of working class members who would never have perceived themselves as being left-wing so they might have used the language of socialism but they were still for example very patriotic very small c conservative you know in their that's not the case with the sort of Corbyn membership. Well, we've we've talked so we've talked about this a lot. That I mean, it's the Labour Party is is we, all parties are are coalitions, and the Labour Party has always been basically a coalition between working class labourers. So hence the name. Yes, yes. And as Orwell would put it, your favourite quote: <laughs> yes, the, the prune yeah. juice drinking sandal wearers. <laughs> yes, and Corbyn was really Corbyn's election was the triumph of. The, the prune juice drinkers of the, of the latter, yeah, over yeah over everyone. But like like similarly, the, the Tories. I mean, there's an inherent tension within the very name. I mean, then the Conservative Party, yeah, that they don't they're not actually very keen on conserving things. So the tension is between do you uphold the kind of the traditional, you know, I don't know all the traditional stuff that Conservatives yeah. are into, um, or do you adopt a kind of radical libertarian? process which is what trust wanted to do yes which basically involves kind of you know destroying all environmental controls and um trashing everything you can in the cause of boosting gdp tom that peerage is that peerage is vanishing <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i mean in both cases there, there there is a kind of very motivated ideologically coherent minority within both parties and it does yeah. seem that in both cases if they seize control of the entire party it, it always seems to end in tears. Of course it does, because they're by definition, they're not representative, not merely of the mass of the British public. They're not even representative of their own voters, of their own mass of the, let's say, 13 million people who they need to vote for them at the next election. Well, or, or indeed MPs. Or MPs, and or even the, their the, MPs. But the Birkin ar argument for allowing MPs rather than party activists to vote for leaders is that MPs are the voice of the constituents who elect them. Yeah. Well, this is also, by the way, it was also Michael Foote's argument. So Michael Foote, the left-wing Labour Party leader of the 1980s. Love Michael Foote. He used to sort of say to the Benites, um, we're not just delegates. You know, we're not just waiting to be told how to, we have come here. I mean, Michael Foote was a great admirer of Edmund Burke. He would say, he said, you know, we have come here to use our judgment and you should trust MPs to choose the leader that they want. Now that's deeply embedded in the British parliamentary system, but the reforms of the 1980s and 1990s handed power to small groups of activists who basically chose leaders that the MPs did not want. And who by definition are unrepresentative of the vast mass of the British people, most of whom do not care exactly. particularly about politics. So to come back to that question, is this only of interest to people who watch Newsnight or does it actually 
matter and 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 does it impact well it matters i think for two reasons one it's part of the it's a reflection of the enormous hole that britain got itself into not so much with brexit I know we will have listeners who are on both sides of the Brexit issue. So I don't think it's Brexit per se, but I think it's Brexit without a plan. I think that was the real turning point. So it's not necessarily, I think, leaving the European Union. I voted Remain, by the way, in case people are thinking, well, I'm sure people who with very strong views will think we're terribly biased one way or the other anyway. But I don't think that was the issue so much as with an absolute absence of strategy or a strategic vision about where exactly Britain would go. So you would hear completely different things from different Leave campaigners. And what that meant is that as soon as the the referendum sort of passed, there was a constant uncertainty and a a factional civil war about exactly what to do next. And and the trusts... Well, but but Dominic, just just slightly play devil's advocate on that. Haven't there, in fact, been two plans? I mean, there have always been two plans about what to do with Brexit. And one is um, a kind of red Tory levelling up, uh, cut immigration, um, all that kind of stuff. And the other one is Singapore on the Thames, rip up the rule book, you know, pump sewage if it it boosts GDP, all that kind of thing. (laughs) And basically, the first one didn't work with Boris. And so they thought, oh, well, well, let's try the other one. That might work. And they've tried it with Liz Truss, and that hasn't worked either. Well, I think that's effectively what what has happened. But that said, Tom, I don't think people thought it through as clearly as actually you've suggested. <laughs> I don't think people did think, well, that hasn't worked. I think it's, it, beca- it became all messed up with personality politics and kind of court politics. But also, to be fair to the, the government, I mean, there's also... Um, oh, they've got a hor- horrible inheritance. Yeah. COVID and, and, and then Ukraine. So COVID and Ukraine, of course, that's torpedoed everything. So it's impossible for any minister to go on the radio and not say, well, it's a global crisis. I mean, actually, Liz Truss, when she resigned, I mean, she got Putin, I think, in a, after about 10 seconds, didn't she? She did. It was in a sentence too, I think. Yeah. I, I, and, and she's not wrong. It is a global crisis. But, we, but we've, we've handled it worst. Would you say that's fair? Uh, at a purely sort of high political level, we've certainly handled it worse. I mean, it's easy to forget that, for example, our COVID furlough scheme was probably the most generous in Europe. Our vaccine rollout was very fast. We have actually come up with the weapons and stuff for Ukraine. So and, and there are some things that we've done well, but in terms of the personalities of our politicians, the way they've presented themselves, their, their standards of behavior and of decency and so on, and just sort of dignity – you're absolutely right. They have disgraced themselves <laughs> to a to a degree unmatched anywhere else in in Europe, and it does pay me to say that because you know, Tom, you are a patriot. That nobody loves to bash our continental neighbours as much as I do, and you know to big up Britain. But it's true, you know. Last night, but in a way, we are bigging up Britain. We're saying our crisis is the worst. Well, you know, if we can't be the best, yeah. let's be the worst. I mean, I think we should, we, we expect, I expect a rumbustious democracy. I do not want a sort of, uh, a sort of European Parliament style. People, are, children are doing interpretive dance in the aisles. Yes, we, we said this, we said this about, uh, in the previous episode we did on the resignation of Johnson. We did say that. Um, but there's rumbustious and then there's ludicrous. Kind of, yeah. yeah, I mean, a, a bloodstained shambles. Yes. And I think that element about shambles. So to go back to your point about um, 
Does it matter to ordinary people? It obviously matters enormously if it's going to put two percentage points on the interest rate that you pay for your mortgage. And this is the real thing with the trust fiasco is that it's not just that we had an absolutely ludicrously ill-equipped person as prime minister for, you know, 45 days or whatever. It's that the implosion of her ridiculous economic plan, ill-conceived economic plan has meant that the Bank of England will probably end up raising interest rates a percentage point or two higher than they might otherwise have done. And for some families, that will be economically catastrophic. And businesses. And businesses, exactly. So that, you know, it's easy for us to sort of chuckle and to, you know, draw our comparisons. And, and it's easy for political correspondents, of course, to get very excited about all the hullabaloo and the sort of hurly-burly. But it's e- important to remember there are these are real these economic figures really matter to people so yes i think it does matter what i really hope it 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 doesn't do is it lead to a sort of long term 70s style culture of sort of negativity and and all that you know that basic not just here here but among people do they invest in britain is britain a bit of a dead duck all that kind of thing but reading your books on the 70s the sense of crisis there seemed to be that the, the massive uh, indicators in the economy, so inflation, unemployment, growth, were consistently against the government. It didn't matter whether it was Tory or Labour. It was, it was yeah. a kind of uh, a, a disaster. And perhaps in a similar way, that was bred of, of foreign circumstances and national incompetence. Yes. And do, and do you think that we're back in a kind of similar, similar bind to that? Is this a return to the 70s as, as people say or, or, or to is some it extent, worse yeah. is it worse or is it better oh is it worse or is it better because uh, i suppose one of the things in the 70s is that you had north sea oil starting to come on you did come to come in so that's a boon and i guess the demographics were also more positive if britain was a younger nation then yes but on the the counter argument to that tom i suppose would be that the real the, you're stepping right back the real problem for britain in the 70s was that it was embark about to embark on a very a long delayed and very painful period of economic transition, which you could argue in the in the really long run is the transition from basically the Victorian or the po- well, the immediately post Victorian economy to uh, the the economy we have now, and that that was going to have to come. It was going to be so difficult. It was going to involve a lot of lost jobs, a lot of damage to communities, and so on, and that that was the problem that lay under everything else failing industries, steel, coal, shipbuilding, all these kinds of things. These things that were clearly just going to have going to go. Um and so when you looked at when people looked at Britain from outside they kind of said it's an old country and one that is desperately desperately crying out for modernization. Um Britain undoubtedly has issues and challenges right now as so many countries do, but I don't think it's an outlier perhaps in quite the same way. I think I suppose what some listeners would probably say, wouldn't they, is that they think Brexit uh, represents a different kind of existential challenge. Yeah, maybe. But I think looking at it in the the international context, and I think back to the episodes on oil that we did with Helen Thompson. Yes, where she talked about how essentially the moment that the global economy became centred on oil rather than on coal, this was a problem not just for Britain, but for the whole of Europe, that Mm -hmm. essentially 
it is more expensive for Europeans to make things because our energy is more expensive than it was for Russia or, or for the United States. And we're definitely back in that situation now. Um, is there a risk not just for, for Britain, but for the whole of Europe that we're going to go through a, a process of deindustrialization bred by the, the brute fact that we have less cheap energy than, say, the Americans do? Crikey, Tom, I thought I'd come here to, you know, exchange a few cheap quips about Liz Truss. <laughs> um, and, uh, yes, I suppose in the long run, that is that is the fear, isn't it? That um, there's a further period of, is it deindustrialization? I don't know, a further period of economic transition to come in which Europe will be even more, Western Europe will be even more be on the receiving end of globalization, as it were, yeah. than it was in the 1970s and 1980s. And that, um, yes, communities in Britain, which have perhaps become very dependent on foreign investment or on you know cheap manufacturing abroad or whatever it might be, are going to, you know, face some pretty tough winters with energy becoming more expensive and with this sort of period of, of change. Then are you going to see prime ministers rising and falling more and more quickly in, a, in your third century Rome style? Yes, exactly. And and perhaps not just in Britain, that, that crises may start to manifest themselves in other European countries as well. Um, well, I mean, that's, the United States is a, might be a good parallel here. Um, you have you, you saw, but the United States see, is in is in a good position because it has it's it's energy rich. It is. Its energy is cheap. Ours is prohibitively expensive. But the politics of grievance and resentment has become much more marked today in America than it was in, let us say, the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. So, in other words, there are there are large communities of people who feel left behind and. That, that is obviously one of the key drivers of modern politics. People who feel locked out, excluded, they feel they've been cheated of something. I mean, this might be in a Rust Belt community in, in the Midwest, or it might be in a, a town in the so-called Red Wall in Britain, uh, or it might be in, you know, Eastern France uh, among Le Pen voters, um, you know, or, in, you know, in any, anywhere in Europe, effectively. And that could, that, that there is a, an excellent chance that that will become a greater and greater part of the political landscape. And, and that is conventionally how we like to think of it, that all the West is in it together, that, that, that yeah. what happens in America is basically reflected in Europe. But isn't there a possibility, which seemed, has seemed to me the implication of, of that, those episodes we, we did with Helen, mm -hmm. and has kind of basically haunted me ever since, and nothing that has happened since we recorded those episodes has persuaded me to change my view on this, that America and, and Europe may be going on radically divergent parabolas mm -hmm. that that if you have cheap energy in the 20th century and into the 21st century then your economy will grow if you don't it will it will decline and isn't the possibility that what we're going through at the moment with putin and you know cutting of the nord stream and all that kind of stuff that actually trust perhaps was justified in mentioning him as early as she did that Europe stands on the cusp of a process of, of deindustrialization. I mean, it's, I, I agree. This was meant to be a cheery and jolly episode yeah. with, you know, some light quips about Roman emperors. But I, 
you decided to go go in well, bleak. Just, when, uh, basically, isn't, that the joy, isn't that, that the joy of a podcast that you as you, soon you as your peerage, as soon as the peerage <laughs> went up in smoke, you just became incredibly morbid and and, and gloomy. <laughs> well, I don't know I the think, answer I think to this. this. I think I listeners, the if they listen back, will notice that's the moment when the tone <laughs> changes. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you're right, Tom. I think you probably are right. I think it is a a, a sort of distressing thought that actually because europe doesn't have all these cheap energy sources that europe is, is going to find it increasingly difficult i mean whether that means a complete divergence of you know strategically from the united states or whatever i don't know but you're absolutely right that um i don't think if you were you know if you're starting to play a, str- a strategy board game set in the year 2022 and then moving onwards do you choose to play as western europe no, you probably don't, do you? No. Well, um, I, I, and I thought it was kind of symbolic that um, the parliamentary vote yesterday that I, I was I wasn't actually I was off uh, uh, batting for Alfred the Great in a greatest British king. Yeah, how did you get on debate? I came second behind Elizabeth the, Elizabeth the first. Um, oh, right. I was doing okay. that for for Dan. So at least Snow. one Liz, one Liz ends <laughs> yeah, one the Liz triumphant. Yeah, yes. Um, so I, I started, but, but as I gather, this was all about a vote on fracking, which has been yes. banned for environmental reasons and Liz Truss wanted to reintroduce wants to reintroduce yeah um, An incredibly toxic part, uh, policy with much of the Tory party it has to be said exactly so uh, it's symbolic perhaps of the struggle to to get cheap energy that is kind of i guess weighing down anyway i, I'm I mean sorry. one other thing I've, we haven't mentioned tom depressed. no 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 it's fine one other thing we haven't mentioned at all uh, i'll ask you because otherwise it's just you interrogating me um about increasingly bleak questions existential <laughs> questions yes. uh is whether the standard of politicians has declined as people so often argue that it has do you think they've declined in our lifetime i i, I always feel that so I, I, I now look back on the, the days of good King Boris. <laughs> <laughs> what wouldn't we give for his, his moral probity and the, the yes. stability that he, um, I don't, yes, but I, but I wonder whether that isn't just the fact that, that to me, the politicians of my childhood seem colossal figures, but I, I mean that almost literally. I'm a small child watching them on a television. They seem yeah. physically bigger. Um, Whereas now they're all, you know, politicians are now younger than me. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm less respectful of them. <laughs> the politicians of our childhoods um, often had come to politics later in life. They had, I mean, in our, in our case, a lot of them had served in the Second World War. So somebody like Dennis Healy, Labour Chancellor in the 1970s. I mean, a Labour Chancellor who has to go to the International Monetary Fund to beg for a bailout. Uh, but he had been a beach master at the land, Allied Landings and Anzio, so basically organising stuff on the beaches. I mean, an incredibly dangerous and complicated job. But that's a different matter, isn't it? That you know, hinterland was Dennis Healy's great word. Uh, yes, and always about himself. A great deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. um, I mean, a uh, you know, a, a kind of interesting backstory isn't necessary to be a good politics. I mean, Tony Blair didn't have a, a particularly interesting backstory, but I think he was a very, very effective prime minister everybody knows you love tony blair john major did have an interesting backstory which he then tried to make as boring as possible uh, <laughs> well actually john major wrote when because john major his father had sold garden gnomes that's great isn't it well, he's meant to and, be the model for major tom isn't he in the bowie song yeah i mean as our producer dom is sending us a message the only person to run away from the circus yeah. to become an accountant uh so his father who had been a music hall performer 
Um, John Major later wrote a book about the history of the music hall, and which I reviewed. It's good, wasn't the, it? And the preface, yeah. There's a wonderful scene in the preface where he says basically he went to visit his father when he was his father was dying, and he was he lived upstairs in some sort of boarding house or something, very kind of sort of shabby post-war London kind of scene in Brixton. And John Major, yeah, and John Major goes up to visit him, and he said a succession of very strange moth-eaten decrepit (laughs) people would come up and down the stairs and these were other ancient musical (laughs) performers visiting his father um so anyway yes uh that's a tangent i think they have declined but i also think the environment in which they we expect them to perform has become degraded by social media by rolling news by all these kinds of things which mean that they don't it's very hard for them to to be impressive actually you know they're expected to, yeah, you know, they're, they're to live in this world of sound bites. They're given so little time to write, to think, to read, to take their time, to change their minds. But one of the things about about Liz Truss and Quasi Quetang was that they they kind of did, didn't they? They've written a book, uh, their book uh, Britannia Unchained. Well, you you said you you wrote a great essay for for Unheard, which U N H E R D about Quasi Quetang <laughs> being uh, the wrong kind of intelligent. That um, well. He's phenomenally clever. Yeah. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, somebody, I, I, I said this in the article and somebody uh, tweeted me and they said, oh, anyone could, could have, you know, he just was lucky. He was privileged. That's not the case. Kwasi Kwarteng had an absolutely astounding run of achievements from the, clearly from the moment he entered school as a little boy until basically the moment he became an MP. You know, he won endless medals and prizes. He won scholarships. He had a double first from Cambridge. He had a PhD. He wrote books. He was fantastically clever, but he was also clearly lacking in intellectual humility because somebody with any intellectual humility would not have embarked on such a ludicrously over excessively radical package of tax changes, which was clearly going to everybody had sort of warned him it would explode in your face. And it did. Capax imperi nisi imperaset. The, uh, the famous lines written by Tacitus about the Emperor Galba that everyone would have said he was perfectly suited to be emperor until he actually became emperor. And you yeah. could perhaps say the same about You could say Kuteng. about Quasi Kuteng. You'd never said You'd never said about Liz Truss. No. Quasi Kuteng, very impressive figure. Liz Truss always seemed faintly ludicrous. Well, faintly. I mean, I, 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 I'll be frank, Tom. I will be frank about uh, when, the, when Boris fell and there was the talk of – it never occurred to me that she would succeed him. Because I just thought she's so obviously a terrible communicator. Yeah. You know, it's so incredibly unimpressive. Yeah. And that is so important, isn't it? I mean, she's flat monotone voice. Nothing she ever says is of any interest. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I think it matters enormously. And it's a funny example. This thing about we talking about the activists choosing, um, choosing their leaders. It's, It's a funny example of something that you see again and again in politics, which is that People who are really, really invested in politics are such bad judges of politics. And I often th- say to people, you know, the less you know about politics, the better able you are to judge it. But the weird thing was that she, or, she, she was elected almost because she lacked. So, so Rishi Sunak, who, contend, who, who fought the, the leadership campaign with her, it was his smoothness and his plausibility that, that, party members seem not to have liked yeah 
his metropolitanness, his wealth. But it's 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 his fluency and his smoothness. And so she, I suppose, the implication was that because she had neither fluency nor smoothness, therefore she was somehow more authentic, even though she had junked all her principles after after leaving university because she'd previously been a Republican Liberal Democrat. Well, she'd been a Remainer, and then she became yeah. Anyway, anyway, Dominic, she she is gone. She is gone. Yeah, I should give up. I should let her go. Uh, and I feel that I feel that we have um, lingered over the autopsy too long. Um, do you? Yeah, I do a bit, really. Oh, I think it does. Um, well, this is anyway. another t- a peerage attempt, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't want one from her. Um, so yeah, uh, you'd anyway, be known you'd be known everyone, <laughs> yeah, when people no. would say Lord, Lord Holland, and people would be muttering behind your back. The trust, Pierre. The t- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm holding out for Penny Mordant to, oh, yeah. to knight me on the deck of the uh, Golden Hind or something like that. Well, she's a naval. She she is a naval reservist, and of course, she competed in Splash the, with Tom Daly. <laughs> so, well, so, so she would have very much enjoyed our Trafalgar podcasts. And if she becomes PM, let's hope that I hope she listens to them again and does her duty. <laughs> it gives us both peerages. Okay, exactly. On that note of uh, shameless 18th century would be cronyism. <laughs> Um, thanks very much for listening. Um, do not forget, uh, if you are not Restless History members, today is Trafalgar Day, and you can mark this most um, glorious day in British history, Battle of Trafalgar, and wash the, wash the taste um, of, of the horrors of contemporary British politics out of your mouth by listening to uh, our episode on the actual Battle of Trafalgar by joining up to the rest of history uh, club. If not, if not, you'll have to wait till Monday. Yeah, and it's worth saying, Tom, earlier in the podcast, we may have suggested that giving power to activists and members was a bad idea. <laughs> no, we're all in favour of rest the rest of the history club. We, are we all love for you. It. Yeah, yeah, we're all for it. All for all it. Right. All right. Uh, we'll see you probably next week for the next resignation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See you then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. (laughs) 